Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, we've been uh, working our way through the Ten Commandments over the last few weeks. I understand this week we're going we're gonna to set the commandments aside for a moment and focus on a current event. Right now there are Supreme Court nominee confirmation hearings going on. And Man, I want to hear your take on, on what's happening right now. Well, we've got a very exciting series of hearings going on right now involving the nominee of President Biden, this judge, Brown Jackson, I'm not even going to try to pronounce her first name because somebody would accuse me of pronouncing it wrong. And so I'm just going to say Judge Brown Jackson. And I guess there's several things to begin with. That the Supreme Court is supposed to be removed from politics. And of course, we all know that's not going to happen completely. But to some extent, we can remove the court from politics. But in order to do that, what we would want to do, you would think, would be to choose those who are the most capable, the most objective, have the best judicial temperament, and put together a court consisting of those who would reflect those qualities. But that does not seem to have been done here. In fact, President Biden announced something when he began his search for a nominee to replace Justice Breyer. He said something that I don't believe any president has ever said before in regard to the appointment of not just a Supreme Court justice, but any other federal judge. He said that he was going to limit the pool as to who could be considered to blacks and women, both. In other words, only a black woman would be considered for a position on this court, a black male don't bother applying. A white female or a white male, don't bother applying. That it was going to be limited to this pool of black females and black female lawyers who have had the judicial experience to be considered. That brings it down to a fairly narrow pool. And in doing this, I think that if Judge Brown Jackson is in fact confirmed, That is always going to leave a question. It's always going to leave the question, is she on the court because she was the most qualified person available? Or is she on the court because she is a black female? And I think he has really done her a disservice in the process. But as we look to Judge Brown Jackson, we find her a pleasant person. She handles herself well in judicial hearings. But as far as her background, it's a very limited background. She's had some years on the Sentencing Commission, some years as a public defender, several years as a federal district court judge, confirmed quite recently as a circuit court judge for one of the more liberal circuits, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And there she issued her first opinion about 24 hours within the time of when she was nominated for the Supreme Court. Obviously, that opinion had been rushed out just to show that she had made a a decision there in the Court of Appeals. But 
it certainly leaves a question as to whether or not she really has had the experience in order to serve effectively as a Supreme Court justice or whether she's been fast-tracked for this position just because she is a black female. And that is unfortunate. Now, several things that you might say are encouraging that if you look to the hearings that are taking place in the last couple of days, she certainly sounds some of the right notes to be confirmed by a Senate that is divided 50-50 with Kamala Harris, the vice president, casting the deciding vote. But she certainly knows how to sound some right notes. She begins by thanking God and by saying that she could never have gotten this far were it not for faith. But faith in what? She doesn't say. I mean, everybody has faith in something, but that's just a vague term. She's also expressed a belief in originalism as a philosophy for interpreting the Constitution and deciding cases. Now, the term originalism has come into our vocabulary in recent years. Originally, we would have said jurisprudence of original intent. And what it means is that the intent of the framers is what governs in determining what the Constitution is to be interpreted to mean. You look, first of all, to the plain language of what it says. Justice Scalia especially was noted for doing that. And if there's an ambiguity in what it says, the words themselves are not clear just based on their plain meaning, then you look to the intent of those who wrote it. And to look to the intent of those who wrote the Constitution, you look to their character, their beliefs, their values. You also look to the circumstances at the time that might have affected them, the fact that they're coming out of a war situation, newly into independence, the fact that they've been through a lot of instability as a result of the Articles of Confederation and need to move to something beyond that. Also, the fact that they have been a subject of England. and So you might say those two factors, you put them together, and on the one hand, they would have a fear of anarchy with the Articles of Confederation. On the other, they'd have a fear of tyranny with the British government, and so wanting something in between. You look to what they believe in regard to religion and what they believe in regard to the establishment of religion and the free exercise of religion. And you look, first of all, to England and see the situation in England that they came from, where you had an official state church, the Church of England, with the king as the head of that state church. And they came over here to America to get away from that. And you look to the situation in the colonies, what the colonies' practice was in regard to religion, other things like that, in order to try to determine what the intent of the framers was when they wrote the First Amendment, when they write the free speech clause of the First Amendment. Well, you look to the fact that they say there should be no law of bridging freedom of speech, but... Does that mean absolutely no restrictions whatsoever? Well, when you look to the situation in the states at the time, we find that the states, most of them had prohibitions against 
vulgarity and things like that. He had speech prohibitions against speech that might threaten public order and other things. And so when you look at that, it seems like they didn't mean it to mean an absolute, that there could be no restrictions at all on free speech. Rather, they said, we'll state the general principle that government cannot abridge freedom of speech, and we'll leave it to the legislatures and the courts to work out what some of the exceptions might be, which is what the courts have been doing. But that's what we mean by jurisprudence of original intent. And we go from there to talk about, for some, a strict construction, and others a broad construction. We look to those terms, particularly in regard to powers that are delegated to the federal government. And you look back to two very important founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention and one of the three authors, in fact, really the primary author of the Federalist Papers. Jefferson was not. But on the other hand, Jefferson was president during a key period of constitutional interpretation, which Hamilton was not. And so both of them are important. Jefferson, one of the powers that are delegated to the federal government to be interpreted very narrowly or very strictly. Hamilton, one of them to be interpreted more broadly. But each of them was trying to interpret those powers. Each of them would make a convincing argument that I'm going back to the intent of the framers, and here is what I think the intent of the framers was. Jefferson, no, this is what I think they meant, back and forth. But then we have a school that arose in the 1870s. We call it legal positivism that comes out of the Harvard Law School in the 1870s. By the way, Judge Brown Jackson is a graduate of Harvard, and Harvard College and Harvard Law School. And some would argue that there is way too much Harvard and Yale influence. In fact, every one of the justices except one is either a Harvard or a Yale graduate. And that seems to be overly weighted and not representative of the nation as a whole or even the legal community as a whole. But let's talk about legal positivism as soon as we get back from the break. To Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, you were beginning to touch on the subject of legal positivism as we went to break. Can we pick up from there? We certainly can, because this is very important in understanding how we interpret the Constitution. Prior to the 1870s, it would have been a consensus here in America that the intent of the framers is key in interpreting what the Constitution means. The belief would have been that truth is fixed and absolute, and law, which is a reflection of truth, is likewise fixed and absolute, and the meaning of the Constitution, therefore, does not change what it meant in 1789, it means today. But the role, then, of the courts was to 
try to understand what the Constitution says, what the framers meant by it, and apply it to cases of the day and decide those cases accordingly. In fact, one figure that the Founding Fathers had a very high respect for was Sir William Blackstone of England with his commentaries on the Constitution. And Blackstone had repeatedly said that judges do not make law. They discover and apply law. And the role of a judge, the way I would see it is this. A judge does not create a law. And you think about a sculpture like Michelangelo. Here's an interesting analogy. Michelangelo, you might say, oh, you created that statue of David. You took that hunk of marble and you transformed it into David, that statue of David. Michelangelo would have said, no, I didn't create that statue of David. That was in there all the time. All I did was chip away the excess rock and reveal the statue of David that was in there all along. I think that's a great analogy to what Blackstone's view of law was, what his view of the role of the judge was. It wasn't to create something new. It was to reveal what the law was all along. And that was the common conception of law, that law was based on truth, the truth was ordained by God, and therefore truth was fixed, and the role of the judge was to understand the Constitution and the statutes and apply them objectively and impartially to the case at hand. But at Harvard in the 1870s, partly as a result of changing philosophies in Europe, like Hegel, Hegelian dialectic, George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel with his idea that truth is a changing process of dialectics, the thesis and antithesis and synthesis, and then Comte with his idea of positivism, that there's no such thing as abstract ideas like equality or liberty or fairness or justice. Rather, all there is is just the concrete. If you can't feel it, or see it, or taste it, or smell it, or hear it, or see it, or put it under a microscope and analyze it, then it's not knowable. It's not, not worth knowing. And so that reduces law just to physical concepts and nothing more. And then tie all that in with Darwinian evolution. The idea that everything is in flux. Everything is changing. Everything is evolving. And with that, we get this concept that we call legal positivism, which really puts those philosophies together. And the first premise of legal positivism would be that there is no such thing as divine law. God, if he exists, is not the author of the legal system. The legal system is man-made. And when we say man-made, that means it's made by the highest human authority, the state. And since the state makes law, and the state is men, and men are evolving creatures, the state evolves, and as the state evolves, truth evolves, and law evolves and changes as well. Okay, so now we're seeing a very different view of law than what the Founding Fathers would have held. 
the laws of nature and of nature's God, Jefferson said. And he saw those as unalienable rights and as self-evident truths. But what's the role of a judge then? In this view, judges guide the evolution of law. Not legislators, not auto mechanics, not pastors, but judges guide the evolution of law, and they do so by writing decisions. That means the source of the decision, the source of law, is not the Constitution, not the truth that God has established, not the law that is in the mind of God. Truth is in the mind of the judge. Law is in the mind of the judge. And the decision that a judge has written is like a computer printout of the judge's mind. That being the case, as we developed it in the 1870s at Harvard, we see what we call the case law method of legal study. And I'm giving Harvard a lot of the blame for this, but <laughs> this spread to just about every other law school in the country, and not just the country, but throughout the English-speaking world and probably beyond. But that to study law, you read cases. When you go to law school, you're going to be given case books, that is, books of cases, that is, decisions of judges. Now, if you'd gone to law school in the 1700s or 1800s, you would have been reading tracts like Blackstone, like Cook upon Littleton, like Bratton on the common law, how you'd study the Justinian Code and others of the ancient codes, and you'd read Chancellor Kent's works and other essays and so on. And you'd also apprentice yourself to a successful lawyer, and you would learn from him, you'd help him draft his legal papers, you'd file them for him, you'd observe him in court and take notes for him and so on. And that's how you would learn law. Today, when you go to law school, most of what you do in law school is study the decisions of judges, because that, in this view, is the source of law. You come out of a case, for example, and you get a new precedent set on that case, and you're likely to say, we just made some law today. Blackstone would utterly turn over in his grave to hear that statement. Judges don't make law. They only discover it and apply it to cases at hand. Anyway, that changing philosophy is reflected at Harvard, and it's reflected in most law schools throughout the country today. We have an increasing number of law schools today that are challenging that philosophy. The Oak Brook College of Law and Government Policy, where I teach, Liberty University, established by Jerry Falwell in Lynchburg, Virginia, and Regent Law School in Virginia Beach, established by Pat Robertson. We have the Ave Maria School of Law, and to some extent, we would have the Campbell School of Law in North Carolina. Ave Maria is staunchly Catholic, and anyway, Campbell is Baptist. And of course, then there is a lot of good, good originalists there at Brigham Young University as well. And so we have some that are challenging this viewpoint. But this has been the dominant viewpoint in law schools for really more than the, the last century. And so the question of what one's judicial philosophy is, is very important. Now, since Justice Scalia and his emphasis on original intent 
We have seen that term originalism emphasized much more. In fact, even a very liberal justice on the court, Justice Kagan, who is a liberal justice, but I'd also say she's quite right. She has said, we are all originalists now. And justices today will give lip service to original intent. But is that really what they mean? Well, as we look to what Judge Brown Jackson means, we need to study her philosophy a little more. And let's look more at her after the break. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmull from the Foundation for Moral Law and spending some time today talking about the current Supreme Court nomination process underway in Washington, D.C. And, Colonel, as you describe positive law and as you describe how law becomes about, uh, you know, what uh, other judges have said, it seems like we have lost uh, an objective standard. Um, This I don't know. To my thinking, it it, it means that uh, we, we get to discard the wisdom and, and the things that were time-proven throughout the ages and basically go with whatever is fashionable at the time. Well, you're correct on that. And you recall that when Jesus was before Pilate and said that you shall know the truth, and Pilate said, what is truth? Now, whether he was making a philosophical observation that people define truth differently or whether that was a sincere question or whether... He was simply throwing up his hands and saying, everybody has his own definition of truth. We don't know. But the question as to what truth is has been around for a long, long time. And I teach Christian apologetics, and teaching apologetics, I deal a great deal with the question of what truth is. And, of course, we have what we call correspondence theory, which is Aristotle's view of truth, that truth is that which corresponds to reality, then you have the question, what is reality? But in other words, he would look to more of an earthly, worldly definition of looking to if something is true, if it corresponds to the phenomena that we see around us. In which case, you have to make the assumption that our senses correctly interpret that phenomena for us. Plato would give a little more of a idealistic philosophy of truth in the sense that truth is more of an abstract idea and we measure truth by consistency. In other words, is truth internally consistent? And so others will define truth in terms of, does it work? Is it practical? Does it solve our problems? Or does it answer the questions that that we have? But what is truth? That's a key question because law is based on truth. And when we're asking what is truth, we're also asking, what is law? Now, in the hearings that have taken place so far, and within a week, I suspect we'll know a great deal more about Judge Brown Jackson than we know today, but she has sounded some notes that are encouraging at first, but she says that her role as a federal judge is a limited role, and she says that she approaches cases with caution. She says the adherence to text is a constraint on my authority, trying to figure out what those words mean as they were intended by the people who wrote them. 
And if that's not a, enough to make a ruling, she says she looks to history, practice, and precedent. Well, all of that sounds encouraging. However, I have to add to that that she knows that's what those who are voting to confirm her want to hear. And that no judicial nominee who wants to be confirmed is going to come to the hearing and say, no, I don't believe the intent of the framers matters at all. I don't believe the words of the Constitution matters at all. What I'm going to do on the court is I'm going to use all of my talents to rewrite the Constitution to say what I wish it said, but that's all that really matters. No, no judge nominee is going to say that. And so, although that language sounds encouraging, it is not enough. She was asked several times about whether abortion, the Roe versus Wade decision, is a binding precedent and said that it was. In fact, Senator Feinstein of California, who raised similar questions to Judge Kavanaugh and to Judge Barrett, as they were seeking confirmation to the court, she would ask, well, is Roe versus Wade a super precedent? Well, I've taught constitutional law for approximately 50 years. And until she started using that term, I never heard that term super precedent. That's something that has just been made up very recently. But what it means is a precedent that is entitled to special deference because it's been reaffirmed several times or it's especially important or people have relied on it. And no, I would say Roe versus Wade is not a super precedent. In fact, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the court chipped away at Roe versus Wade. They reduced it from an upper tier to a middle tier right. They said that states may restrict abortions in ways that they would never have been allowed to restrict abortion under Roe versus Wade. And in Gonzalez versus Carhartt in the early 2000s, the case in which the Supreme Court, by a five to four, might have been six to three, but anyway, the Supreme Court majority upheld a federal prohibition on partial birth abortion. Again, that is a further limitation on Roe versus Wade. But nothing about Roe versus Wade makes it a special super precedent. We don't overrule precedents likely. Precedents play a value. The value, as Judge Kavanaugh said when he was being confirmed, is that they help give us some predictability to what the court is going to do. But the courts do overrule past precedents. In fact, the Supreme Court has overruled previous precedents no less than 300 times in its history. So to say that a past precedent is a sacred cow that can never be overruled overruled. That's nonsense. But anyway, so just simply saying that, yes, it's a precedent, that doesn't say a whole lot as to where she stands on this. I just mentioned the Gonzalez versus Carhartt case in which the Supreme Court upheld partial birth abortion. Judge Rogers Brown, in her private legal work at that time, fought against that decision as an attorney. She would have said that partial birth abortion is something that is justified and something that is a constitutional right and needs to re remain legal. So that was her position at that time. What it is now, it's hard to say. She was also asked by Senator Cornyn of Texas that where does the court get authority to employ substantive due process? And we talk about the due process clause of the Fifth 
5th and 14th Amendments, the 14th saying, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process. The court has interpreted due process to be more than just procedure. They've interpreted it to be substantial matters as well. And anyway, her response is simply, the court has interpreted the 14th Amendment to allow this. And when Cornyn then asked her, what other unenumerated rights, like abortion, gay marriage, and so on, those are not mentioned in the Constitution, and yet the court has recognized them. He asked, what other unenumerated rights are there? And Judge Brown Jackson responded, I can't say. She was asked another question about whether the Constitution guarantees the right to keep and bear arms and an individual right to keep and bear arms. Question asked by Senator Grassley of Iowa, and her response to him was, the Supreme Court has held that there is an individual right to keep and bear arms as a fundamental, that is a higher tier right. That's her statement. And that is correct. That's what the Supreme Court has ruled. She hasn't said, however, that if she were on the Supreme Court, she would not vote to overturn that ruling. And so that answer may sound a little bit encouraging, but it certainly doesn't give us a whole lot to go on. And she's asked a few other questions. For example, she was asked the question about whether there should be cameras in the courtroom and and Senator Grassley asked that. She ducked that question, and that may be appropriate. She was asked why in some of her briefs where she was defending some of those who were confined at Guantanamo as war criminals and terrorists, that in some of the briefs that she filed in defending those people, she had called President Bush a war criminal, and she simply said she didn't remember. And anyway... You look at that answer and hardly think that she could call the president a war criminal and now say she doesn't remember it. Now, we do need to be fair here that sometimes when you are defending a person in court, you're going to take a position in defending that person that may not be your personal position. We understand that. But it just demonstrates once again, there are a lot of questions about this justice that we need to be very concerned about. One of the biggest concerns that's been raised in the last couple of days is her kindness or her softness toward those who are involved in child pornography. And there are sentencing guidelines that are given for people that are convicted of things like this. The prosecutors will recommend sentences in people in these cases without exception. In every case that she has handled involving child pornography, she is given a sentence that is far more lenient than what either the guidelines or the prosecutor were asking. And we need to look at whether that reflects a mindset that we want on the court. Let's look at that further after the break.
welcome you to our fourth and final segment of Constitution Classroom today here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law is here with us. And uh, Colonel, I got to say, as I've heard some of the objections uh, to to this uh, this current nominee, I that's the, what you brought up in the last segment about how uh, she she seems to have a very interesting deference towards those accused of um, sexual crimes against against children. And I understand this is a very contentious process. I look at what uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh was accused of, um, you know, during his nomination hearings. And so I, I want to be fair. I, I don't want to jump to conclusions just because someone has suggested something. But these are matters of legal record, though, aren't they? All of her judicial opinions and all of the briefs she's ever filed with the court are matters of public record that anybody can look at. And some of the things that she might have written in papers for law school or things like that, all of those things can be relevant, too, and those may not be public record. In fact, Tucker Carlson had raised a question, what about her LSAT, that is her law school admission test score? You take the LSAT usually when you're a senior in college and you're thinking about going to law school and you take this test, it shows, it tests analytical reasoning and things like this to determine whether you'd be able to succeed in law school and succeed as a lawyer and so on. And she, or he was roundly criticized for having even suggested they ought to look to that. And yeah, to me, it's not all that important. I mean, frankly, I don't remember what my LSAT scores were, but probably the law school has them somewhere. I don't really care, but at any rate, there were several who were so critical of Tucker Carlson for asking this, indicating that unlike the way they treated Judge Kavanaugh or when they, the way they treated Judge Bork and several other cases, they think the Judge Brown Jackson should be given basically kid gloves treatment and very gentle treatment. And I don't think we can do that when we're dealing with a Supreme Court nominee. We're dealing with somebody who is going to be serving a lifetime appointment, probably. They serve during good behavior and for practical purposes. That means until they either retire or die in most cases. But we need to know much more about what her philosophy is, what her past actions have been. And so the thorough vetting is something that is very important here and it needed to be done in the case of Kavanaugh. The big question with Kavanaugh there was, where does the burden of proof lie when there are accusations that are decades old? Do we presume he's innocent or do we presume he's guilty? And either way, is it proof beyond a reasonable doubt or what standard? That still hasn't been completely resolved. But these things are not out of bounds. There are certainly things that need to be considered here. Anyway, looking to Judge Brown, and we mentioned her feelings of compassion toward those who are being sentenced for child pornography. The reason that she gave for this is the reason that is confusing to many. What she's saying is it, because it is so readily available on the Internet right now, it shouldn't be treated as quite as severely as what they thought at the time they drafted those sentencing guidelines. Now, why that means it should be treated less severely is open to some questions. Some are arguing, no, that means it should be treated more severely. I suppose maybe you could make the argument that because it is so readily available, you may not necessarily have to have the same requisite criminal intent or depraved intent in order to access it 
as if you had to actually go out somewhere looking for it. Maybe, maybe that's what she means, but at the very least, that definitely needs to be explained. Also, in answer to a question to the Senator Cotton of Arkansas, he asked why she had apologized to a drug kingpin for giving him a sentence of 20 years. And she had said to him that she apologized for giving this sentence because she says, I believe in a second chance, but this is what the law requires. Senator Cotton's point was that we're not talking about somebody who's just been caught using drugs. We're talking about with a dealer, a drug kingpin. And why that would seem excessive for dealing with a drug kingpin who is ruining many people's lives and getting rich off the process. Well, she needs to explain that. But I'm going to suggest to you that there's another area here that needs to be explored and that we need to find out more about this. And she has been the on the board of a school there in Georgetown, the Georgetown Day School, that has a reputation as the most progressive school in the area. And as she's serving on the board of that school, well, she was asked the question by Senator Cruz, I believe it was, whether critical race theory is being taught in that school. And anyway, she said she didn't know whether it was being taught there or not. She basically tried to minimize the importance of critical race theory. She said, well, critical race theory is something that's taught in law schools. Well, she needs to be aware, if she's not already, and I suspect she is, but that in recent years, it has gone way, way beyond the law schools. It's being taught in undergraduate. It's being taught in the high schools. It's even being taught in, in elementary schools today. And we are in the process here in Alabama right now of adopting a bill in our legislature to prohibit the teaching of critical race theory here, as some other states have already done. But anyway, Senator Cruz, and I believe maybe a couple others as well, then showed a number of textbooks that were being used in her school. One of them even had the title of Critical Race Theory Act. And her answer to that question was that, well, I was just serving on the board, and we and the board don't get into curriculum issues. Well, all of this sounds very strange, because on another occasion, she made the statement that what we need to do is we need to look at the social justice issues and we need to meld American law with critical race theory and social justice. We need to meld, that is, we need to mix them together. And so we need to understand something. What is critical race theory and what is social justice? Critical race theory, we've talked about this on this program before, but essentially critical race theory is the idea that we need to view history, economics, and the current crisis in our society today as a culture war involving class, involving race, involving sex, sex precedence and so on, with oppressors and oppressed identity groups and the like, and that 
the whole purpose of law under critical race theory is to advance the oppressed and to put back those who are oppressors. And you are an oppressed or oppressor, not based on anything that you've done, but on the identity groups you belong to. Men are oppressor groups. Women are oppressed. Whites are oppressor groups. Blacks are oppressed. Hispanics are oppressed. Asians and Jews can be either oppressors or oppressed, depending on the particular context, what fits the narrative best. And anyway, the rich are oppressors, the poor are oppressed, and so on. And so the purpose of justice in this view is not to try to render impartial justice between the rich person and the poor person, between the white person and the black person, to determine who was in the right and who was in the wrong, but rather to advance the oppressed identity group and to set back the oppressor identity group. If you are a member of one of those oppressor groups, then you are automatically wrong. And in the view of social justice theory and critical race theory, it is the responsibility of judges to rule in favor of the oppressed. Is that really the philosophy that we want on the Supreme Court? And again, I'm not necessarily saying that this is Judge Brown Jackson's philosophy, but it is being taught right now in the Georgetown Day School where she serves on the board. She said that she wants to meld American law with critical race theory and social justice. And so we need to explore this a lot more and find out what kind of a person she really is, what she really thinks. She may be a very engaging person. She may be a very nice person, very articulate person. But the question is, what kind of philosophy is she bringing to the Supreme Court? And our senators need to explore that very carefully. We in the Foundation for Moral Law are preparing a research paper on her that we will present to all 100 senators. Hopefully, we'll help to resolve this issue. Thank you.